From time to time, I've mentioned that my father was the head of the teachers' union. And uh, as such, when I was a kid, he represented teachers across the nation, um, uh, expressing their needs and working as a lobbyist uh, for the government to try to have teachers paid more, to try to have uh, teachers better cared for. Uh, my dad was the president of the National Education Association, the, the, the world's largest teachers' union which we always found somewhat ironic because most of my teachers were unified in their dislike of me. So you may ask why, because I seem like a fairly pleasant guy, maybe. But uh, it was because I was the class clown. I was an attention-seeking kid from a big family and just constantly felt like I needed to be affirmed. And yet so few teachers were able to see through that, and so most of the time, they just got mad at me. Most of the time, they would just be frustrated that, um, that, they, that, that a kid was interrupting their class, and they had every right to be. But I think back at myself, and I'm a bit embarrassed by uh, my behavior as a 15-year-old. Thank you for your grace. It's been three and a half decades since. But I also remember because I was, a, I was desperate for love. And what I was doing, my actions, my rebellion, is really what it was, uh, was indicative of something that was deeply broken and wounded in me. Because something was broken in my selfishness, I behaved according to what I thought would meet my needs. And this is what the scriptures talk about when it speaks of human beings being rebels. Maturing in Christ means we come to understand not just that we are rebels, but we start to think about why. We start to acknowledge the wounds of our souls so that we combat the destructive and sinful ways that we have coped with our brokenness. And today, as we continue in our new series in Jonah, we're going to look at a single verse, verse 3 of Jonah 1. And this sounds like a very bold proclamation, and it is, but I believe it's true. We are going today to look at the root of all of our problems. If you thought it could be summed up in one verse, it may. As we introduced last week, Jonah was an Israeli prophet from the 9th century B.C., and God had given him the word of the Lord to take to Nineveh. And in response, we're told in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You may ask, what was Tarshish? And, And why exactly would Jonah think he could flee from the Lord's presence there. I mean, how bad was this place that he thought, you know, I'm going to flee from the Lord's presence in Tarshish? Well, Tarshish was actually a city that was in the exact opposite direction of where he was commanded to go. Now, if you look at the map, this is what it looks like. You've got our man, Jonah, in Israel. He is told to go to the north and to the east, to the Assyrian Empire and its capital city of Nineveh. Instead, he says... I'm going down to the port city of Joppa, and then I'm heading all the way across the Mediterranean to this city called Tarshish, which now is Spain. Now, that may not seem like a big trip to you as you look at the map, but 
Imagine how long it would take in a boat in this time. It would take him substantially longer to get to Tarshish on this boat than it would for you and me to get on a plane and fly to the other side of our globe. This was the end of his known world. That's how big of a rebel he was. This is what I would call quintessential rebellion. He tried to get as far as 180 from where he was being told to go. The scriptures say we are all rebellious. By nature, we pursue our own interests first and first and foremost. Naturalists claim this instinct produces a selection process that results in the survival of the fittest. The Bible just calls it original sin. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 12 says this, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Theologians refer to the byproduct of our first parents, Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden as the fall of mankind. And it resulted in our total inability to obey or even want to obey the law of God apart from the influence, grace, and power of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of total depravity contends that our moral nature and will were destroyed through our expulsion from God's presence. And as we'll see today, in order to fully appreciate God's generosity and forgiveness, we must have a keen sense of our own brokenness, our own unworthiness. And if we're going to make good decisions in life as we go forward, unlike Jonah's rebellion, we're going to need a heightened distrust of our moral capacities and instincts. Chief among the reasons why we want to today come to the conclusion that we really do need forgiveness is because until we see ourselves as desperately needy, we won't ever really be desperately appreciative of that which is given. Brennan Manning wrote in his book, Abba's Child, quote, if we gloss over our selfishness and rationalize the evil within us, we can only pretend we are sinners and therefore only pretend we have been forgiven. A sham spirituality of pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss eventually fashions what modern psychiatry calls a borderline personality in which appearance makes up for reality. Those who stop short of evil in themselves will never know what love is about unless and until we face our sanctimonious viciousness, we cannot grasp the meaning of, rec of the reconciliation Christ effected on Calvary's hill. Deeply grasping the meaning of our reconciliation with God frees us to make honest self-appraisals. The gospel, which means the good news, that's what enables us to peer into the abyss of our sinfulness. You may ask why, and it's simple, because Jesus paid for every sin that's in there. His substitutionary death and the byproduct of his crediting or imputing his righteousness to us makes us acceptable to him. Now, through our faith in him, through our trust in Jesus' work, we stand in God's presence righteous in his sight. 
and is completely apart from our works. It's critical that we understand this before we actually start to look into the subject of rebellion because if you're not secure that God loves you, you're going to hem and haw around the subject of how rebellious you really are. You're going to naturally, as I do, go, I'm not that bad, don't tell me that. So we have to actually deal with the reality of the gospel so that we can go, yep, I'm that bad, and God still loves me a lot. But until you are free, to be honest, how do you ever reconcile any relationship of which you and I are mostly part of the problem, if not a significant part of the problem, in that relationship dissonance? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we are all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, through trusting in what Christ has already done for you, you have been made okay with God. He, if you want to think in terms of scorecards and and grade books, he has looked into his uh, account of your actions and has written in the righteousness of Christ in your place. He sees, he has credited to the person who has been humble enough to say, I will trust in you and your kindness alone. He has credited you with the holiness of Jesus. And when we realize we've been made acceptable through Christ, we now can bask in the love of God. Like the last couple of days, I've been outside after all of this rain and cold, just looking up into that sun and going, oh, I'm defrosting. Thank you, Jesus. Our friend Tammy loves the rain. I'm like the opposite of the rain. I'm like, oh, give me sun or give me death. And so... This is what Jesus was wanting us to do as the children of God is to just sit and let him warm us in his kindness. But the result of that is that we would become an extension of that. We would love others, and most importantly, others who, like us, don't deserve it. John Cobb says this, the spiritual man can love only when he knows himself already loved in his self-preoccupation. Only if a man finds that he is already accepted in his sin and sickness can he accept his own self-preoccupation as it is, and only then can his psychic economy be open toward others to accept them as they are, not in order to save himself, but because he doesn't need to save himself. We love only because we are first loved. And with that understanding that we are secure, we want to look into how a prophet, let alone we as Christians, have the ability, yea, the propensity still to wander away. And many of us can relate to Jonah's full-fledged flight from God. Two overarching questions from our text today, and the first is this, can we really flee from the Lord's presence The second is, why did Jonah then try to flee from the Lord's presence? Again, verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it 
to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So you're getting the theme here. Jonah wants away from the presence of the Lord. Now he obviously, and I say obviously, I'll explain why, knew he couldn't flee the omnipresent God. Jonah had a very well-rounded theology. He was from a school of prophets. He was the prophet of God. His familiarity with the Old Testament was probably better than ours. You gotta understand, this is like the chief prophet of his day. I mean, he got his own book of the Bible, for goodness sake. So we're talking about like one of the best, right? Or one of the most obvious. And yet he's still prone to this rebellion. How does somebody at the height of their ministry, if you want to call it that, when God says, hey, I want you to go here, go, I'm going the opposite direction. Thank you very much. Now, you've seen it around you. I mean, if you've been in churches or you've been around the media over the last three decades, the stories are endless of Christian ministers, some of them famous, that just go off the reservation and and everybody wonders how that happened. Well, it's because all of us have within us, including the prophets, this capacity to say, Lord, I'm not going to obey you. But Jonah knew the word. And he also was familiar with Psalm 139, which is a Psalm David wrote, something he learned through his own seasons of disobedience. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Then what was Jonah doing when he was trying to flee from the Lord's presence? Well, we have to start by defining, quote unquote, the Lord's presence and what it meant for Jonah and what it means for us in our experience. For the Old Testament prophet, it was the Holy Spirit's anointing and felt presence. The Holy Spirit of God surrounded the prophet, went with them. They sensed the prophet. Sinclair Ferguson, among others, understands flight in Jonah's case, to mean that Jonah was fleeing from the felt presence of God. And for us, the Lord's presence means something a little different. It means the continuing dwelling of the Holy Spirit in our physical being. So while we can experience the felt presence of God for the Christian believer post the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven and his impartation of the Holy Spirit to his believers, to his followers, to his children, we now have, we have an experience that's unique to us. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus explains what's coming to his disciples when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So you see the distinction between old and new here. When the disciples received their commission from Jesus, when he anointed them and told them to go forth and do his works while he was amongst them, they sensed that the Spirit was with them. But Jesus is talking about something that's about to happen, which is the Spirit is going to be in them. And that's the truth for all believers. 
Now, while our experience with the Spirit in terms of its location may be different from Jonah, the experience of fleeing from God is exactly the same, and all of us know what that's like. You're trying to push away the felt presence of God. You're trying to get God out of your thought. You're trying to extract him from conscious thought and feelings. When that temptation comes, that thing you're not supposed to do that you are tempted to do, or that thing you're supposed to do that you're tempted to ignore like go reconcile with that person you can't stand you and i've been there you go ah let me come up with a really good reason why i don't have to follow that impulse right the scriptures are clear we're supposed to but we all know what it's like well at that moment we want to push away when the temptations come and we don't feel like following the Lord, when our passion for him is low, we say, I don't want to think about it. And so we almost, we mentally begin to push away the thought that God would have any right to tell us what to do. We are fleeing him. Often this results in a physical fleeing, which we have been uh, familiar with as well in our lives. Uh, Most of us know that we've been commanded in the word of the Lord to set aside a weekly day of rest to worship God with other people. Uh, This doesn't mean I get to go golfing on Sunday morning and worship God on the golf course. I'm supposed to be with his people, with the word, with song, with the sacrament. I mean, it's not unclear in scripture that this is the the call of of the believer to set aside and keep the the sabbath day holy whatever that day is for you you want to go saturday great you work on sunday great find a church that has a worship service on monday all i'm telling you is is that the bible is very clear that we are to have a sabbath day but you know when when we're feeling like rebelling against god one of the first things off of our schedule is this gathering together with the believers it's one of the first things we stop doing or that small group that you used to go to, but now you don't want to go to, that becomes something that is extraneous to your life. It's, a, it's something that I can just trim off the schedule. This is what happens because other people begin to remind us of the presence of God, and we push that away. We've been told not to forsake communing together and to remember the Lord as often as we can through the sacrament of communion But in practice, our flight from obedience results in our reduction or elimination of contact with Christian people or practice. Sadly, we're trying in vain to ignore his presence, which he's assured us will never leave. The Spirit will never leave or forsake the child of God. So to answer the question, can we really flee from the Lord's presence? The answer is no. So why would Jonah have tried And this is today what I'm really hoping we'll do is we'll hear an experience in the word what Jonah would have been thinking and feeling and that we'll be able to make that application to our own lives that there are things in us, broken things, sinful things in us that are driving us to behave certain ways. And the mature Christian has to not only say this is bad behavior but go, Jesus, I need something deep to heal me within I need by your spirit and through the washing of your word and for the renewing of my mind to see you do a work in me that will transform my mind so that I can know the will of God, Romans 12, 1 through 2. Why did Jonah try to flee from the Lord's presence? Well, there are two reasons why 
he would have done so. Now, we can categorically say that he just hated the Assyrians and got in a boat and went away, but you have to look beyond that to see one reason Jonah tried to flee from the mission to bring the word to Nineveh was his hatred for enemy souls. His hatred for enemy souls. See, when you hate people, when you viscerally speak of people, when you, when you think bad thoughts and out of your mouth spews, that person, I can't stand them. When they did that to me, they deserve this. That person is that. When our critical spirits take over, it reveals an area of deep pain in our heart that needs to be healed or we're just going to keep spitting this stuff out. We can try to contain it. Wouldn't you rather get rid of the poison altogether? The Assyrians whom Jonah was told to go preach to were the neighboring enemies of Israel. And he was told to go to Nineveh which was the capital of this enemy country, 100,000 people strong. Jonah likely had lost friends and countrymen in previous skirmishes with the Assyrians. If you're wondering the passion with which Jonah hated the Assyrians, think about some of the politics you see in the Middle East now. My people were hurt by your people, and I hate you because of it, and so it's going to completely disrupt our ability to have relationship with each other. We are going to fight wars forever. This is the mindset of Jonah. It's him, an Israelite, being told to go to Palestine and share the gospel. That's the modern-day equivalent. Instead, what Jonah has told us, I want you to take the word of the Lord to Nineveh so that they will repent. But he hated them. You see, Jonah hated them because of his experiences and maybe some pain that he had, but in whatever it was, it led to his conclusion that it would be okay for him to strike back in some way. Jesus said it differently. He said in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. God's unconditional love is given in spite of our lives being characterized by scriptures as once being an enemy of God naturally. Christ brought this reconciliation to us and we're to bring it to others. And I have to say, I know there, there are times, and I have as a pastor counseled people that some relationships you may have experienced in the past were so abusive or so toxic that the best thing for your welfare is to cut those relationships off. And so there are extenuating circumstances and events where it is traumatic and you need to not pursue relationship with that person. Those happen, but we are still called by Scripture to pray for enemies so even if you're never going to make contact with somebody who abused you in the past, one of the ways that you can bring healing to your own heart is to pray for them. I've had some experience with bitterness in my life, uh, some times where I've been harmed by others, whether intentional or not, 
And I also, because of the way I'm wired, um, think in my head a lot and have a lot of internal conversations. So I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but you're driving in the car, somebody or something triggers a memory, and the next thing you know, you're carrying on an audible conversation with you and the invisible person who you're mad at. Ever been there? Am I alone? Sorry. All right. Well, this is not something I enjoy. In other words, at first I'm like, yeah, they're awful. And then my whole spirit starts to get kind of crumble under the bitterness of it. You know, I find myself just in a really foul mood. And that's no way to live. And so I was kind of caught, you know, between feeling this sense of, you know, I should be able to strike back at these enemies. And at the same time, recognizing that it wasn't doing me any good, just making me upset. And so in accordance with the word of Jesus in Matthew 5, I decided to try something. And I thought I'd share it with you today. I presumed, I reasoned that many of the negative thoughts about other people were potentially placed there by my enemy, Satan. Now, it could be just recurring bad memories, and that's fine. Or it could be a real devil who the scripture talks about, who Jesus was tempted by, who loves to whisper really negative crud into my head and get me all stirred up. That was my working assumption. And I thought, you know what? If there is a demonic or some kind of evil intent that is actually creating this kind of regurgitation of bad memories and bad experiences and people who harmed me, if this is really taking place, and then what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start immediately praying for them, for their betterment, for God's grace to be in their lives. And then I thought, if this is Satan kind of dropping these thoughts in my head, He's going to stop because the last thing in the world he wants is for me to pray for these people. I mean, that's the way I reasoned. I thought, you know what? If the enemy wants to bring negative thoughts about people that have maybe harmed me in the past, then bring it on. Then that means we're going to get more prayer for those people. And I'll, I'll be darned if he stopped bringing things to my head that were really disruptive. And, and so now this is a regular practice for me. I can tell when I'm not because of the crud that's coming out of my mouth. Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. <laughs> and so when, you know, when vitriolic kind of negativity starts flowing forth from my mouth, I start recognizing, uh-oh, something in my heart doesn't feel loved. Something in my heart isn't thinking about Jesus' command to love my enemies. And I will go, Father, I pray for this person. And I don't mean in a negative way. I, I begin to passionately pray for their betterment, and, and the Lord has used that in my life to bring a, a healing. Hatred for enemy souls will reveal deep areas of pain that God wants to heal in us. The other thing that would have led Jonah to just try foolishly to flee from the Lord's presence is a haughty delusion of superiority. This is a, a proud sense that my culture, my politics, my everything is better than yours. I see the world more clearly, more purely than you do. I am morally superior to you, and let me tell you why. And all those brags, all of those boasts, all of that posturing, and I got to tell you, I'm an expert at posturing to my shame a lifetime of trying to put myself up in front of everybody like the kid in the classroom. 
I'm telling you, it, it reveals a deep insecurity about yourself. If you're somebody like me who tends to drop in conversation, names, accomplishments, those things need to communicate to you when you begin to try to make yourself feel and look better than others that needs to be a, a red flag. It needs to be a warning sign that something inside of you does not feel valued by your heavenly father. There's something in you and in me that is broken. And these delusions of superiority reveal these insecurities. Jonah's waning perspective about his own sinfulness led him to be ungracious his mental distancing from a growing comprehension of God's grace resulted in his quick dismissal of bad people. And Christians suffer from the same delusion quite naturally when not regularly reminded of our unwilling hearts that were transformed by the grace of God. You know, after inauguration, there were some protests around the country, and I tweeted out, Did you pray before you protested? I did this because the Bible makes it very clear that we're to pray for those in authority. And I do think there is a time and a season to protest. I mean, I think there's a time where it would be wrong not to protest. So don't get me wrong. I'm just saying the first call of the Christian who lives in the kingdom of God is to say, I'm going to pray for my enemies, and that even includes my political ones. Because I may not be all that superior. As a matter of fact, I'm not at all according to Scripture. My perspective on everything is not so much better than everybody else's. I know how angry I get when I see injustice. I know how upset I get when I think truth is being uh, twisted. But the gospel doesn't allow me to look down my nose at people who I think or you think see the world less clearly or morally correct than we do. Pastor Brooks has a saying that I think means a lot to me. A sign of spiritual maturity is that things that used to make you mad now make you sad. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, we are described as broken, in need of help. The prophet Isaiah prophesies about Jesus coming to rescue you and I. And he says this in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions, prophesying forward about who would save us. He, the Messiah, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. But this is the description of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all to our own way. We love in our culture to celebrate the Frank Sinatra's God rest his soul who sang, I did it my way. Is that really what you want to celebrate? You cannot say, I am a Christian and it's my way first. This is not what Jesus has called us to. It is in staying intimate with Jesus, though, and this is through a promised fellowship with the Spirit within us. This is where we begin to experience the reality of what it means to be transformed by the gospel. You see, because we're secure in Christ, we can actually look at our hearts as deceived, as self-deceived, and as selfish as they are. We can then begin to confess these things to him and begin to pour out 
to him that we are confused or that we are angry about what he is calling us to do. That when we are faced with temptations that seem overwhelming or we are asked to do things that are absolutely painful, when obedience to God requires actual sacrifice and you think, I'm not gonna do it, the Christian response should be, Father, I don't wanna do it but I'm coming to you to talk to you about this. I want you to help change my heart. I don't want to push away mentally from a conscious sense of your presence and in vain try to flee you, you who has promised never to leave me. Jesus is calling you and I into friendship, into fellowship. It is being close to the Savior that is gonna give us a sense of what he would do and what we want to do and what we should do and it's gonna enable us to trust him. Brennan Manning says, listen to the faint heartbeat of the dying rabbi, listening to the faint heartbeat of a dying rabbi is a powerful stimulus to the recovery of passion. It is a sound like no other. My senior year in high school, I had a teacher who reached out to me as I attempted to distract the class and make it my own personal audience. Not a lot of teachers did that, and as I said before, I don't blame them. They had every right to think, you know, shut up and stop being a little brat. But Dr. Nicholson took a different approach. After me goofing around in class with my friends in back and making everybody laugh, at the end of the class, he said, Chuck, come here for a second, and As everybody filed out of the room, Dr. Nicholson put his arm around me. He says, Chuck, I really love you. You're a great guy. Told me he liked me, said I was funny. He said, but you know, I'm having a hard time teaching the class with the noise you're making in the back. Do you you think you could help me out and not do that anymore? And I remember just this overwhelming sense of feeling like, I'm sorry, Dr. Nicholson. I I won't do that anymore. I I really apologize. And you know, I didn't anymore. And it wasn't because I felt badly like I felt obligated to in some painful way, he had thrown his arm around me and said that he loved me and he needed me to to follow the class rules and to not be a distraction to the other students. And I got a sense that he really cared. And this was new for me. And it was later that I discovered that Dr. Nicholson was a very devoted Christian. He showed me the love of Christ. He showed me what the gospel is supposed to be, which is me encountering the Father in Christ in such a way that my heart begins to experience the felt presence of God, the desire to love Jesus, and growing in that capacity. Charles Spurgeon says this, here is affection mingled with authority, an authority which does not provoke rebellion, an obedience demanded which is most cheerfully rendered which would not be withheld even if it might. The obedience which God's children yield to him must be loving obedience. Do not go about the service of God as slaves to their taskmaster's toil, but run in the way of his commands because it is your father's way. Yield your bodies as instruments of righteousness because righteousness is your father's will and his will should be the will of his child. Part and parcel of this is knowing that you're his child. Do you see how if you don't get the gospel and you don't really let that marinate in your system, that you're never really gonna ever want to love God? 
He's not just about moral compliance. He could get that without your love. He could force that. He's powerful enough to. He wants a heart that has been transformed by his holy, wonderful, majestic grace extended to us in Christ. And as we discover that we are truly his children, that he's putting his arm around you and saying, I want you to follow me that we begin to discover a new desire to love him and others for the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, today, as Jonah instinctively rebelled when it looked like it was against his personal interests to do so, we would pray that you would give us grace to respond to you in obedience but it's an obedience that's only going to come if we genuinely believe we are the beloved children of Almighty God. Father, bless today your kids as they come to the table to hear and see once again what Jesus has done for them. For we pray in his name.